Hello, and welcome to Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today it's just the two of us, and we're going to be talking about animorphs for the first time, but not the last time. And specifically, we'll be discussing mostly the book, The Departure. Tessa, I have one question for you. Mm-hmm. Who is your favorite Animorph? I honestly, I liked the books about Cassie the best. Although Axe is a close second because he always had a really interesting perspective. Marco could be fun, but he also kind of got a little annoying sometimes. Jake, I just couldn't get into his head at all. Rachel, there was usually a, a helping of angst. And I mean, Cassie could have that too, but Cassie always seemed a little bit more grounded. And Tobias was interesting, but also got kind of weird sometimes when he's like, I'm now a hawk, and I'm attracted to lady hawks. I feel weird about that, which I mean, understandable, but. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to dip into this just briefly of Tobias's ongoing. I mean, they said puberty would be tough, right? But they never said this stuff. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) It's especially so funny because obviously he and Rachel are one of the two main pairings of the books. I would say, I would make a joke, one of the three pairings of the books, obviously, Rachel and Tobias, Jake and Cassie, Marco and Axe. Yeah, uh, you know what? That is valid. Right? But obviously, they're one of the couples. And it's so... There's one book specifically where Tobias is hanging out and Rachel comes to join him and she morphs into a bird. And he's like, Rachel is so pretty, but she's even prettier when she turns into a bird, which already is a little bit like... Hey, what's happening here, buddy? Yeah, yeah. But then he says, like, but actually, the eagle that she's morphing is a male eagle? So maybe she's not prettier as a bird. And it's like, Tobias, a lot is happening right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mentioned that, too, because there's, in another book, he morphs into a human teenage girl, mostly to freak out a controller. And, you know, has absolutely no comment on this experience beyond the fact that Rachel helped him get dressed, and because I've forgotten how into fashion Rachel was, apparently he looked very good. Which, I mean, I I guess I can kind of, you know, see again, because, you know, if you spend most of your time as a hawk, probably after a while one human starts to feel just like another. It's that old chestnut. Is this a sign of something that I should investigate, or am I just a bird now? Yeah, exactly. And we all have to ask ourselves this all the time. I'm doing a full reread right now. I'm now well into the 30s, so I'm deep into ghostwriter territory. Oh, yeah, yeah. They got pretty rough Well, I thought that it would be a lot worse than it is. But I think that one of the main casualties of the ghostwriters is that a lot of them, they're not bad. And I I looked it up, and K.A. Applegate had final editorial say on the book. She would help outline them and then go over them at the end so that they could be more or less of a piece with all the books but i think one of the main casualties is that cassie kind of gets flattened out a little bit she doesn't Mm. get as much nuance in the non-cassie point of view books i think the cassie pov books after the ghostwriters really come on are still good but when she's sort of an accessory character she's not as layered 
I, I vaguely recall that. And yeah, I mean, I read a lot of those books are just kind of an empty space in my memory. Mm-hmm. I think I would advise people if they aren't feeling it within like the first 10% of the book to skip a lot of the ghostwriter books versus the K Applegate slash secretly Michael Grant books. But then also like the worst of the books in, in my opinion that I've read post getting to the ghostwriter era was actually written by K A Applegate. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. And I, given how quickly she was churning them out, because I mean, there was a new one coming out every month. Right? It's You're, Not all of them are going to be winners. And, you know, the fact that she was able to finish the series and not have it just kind of, like, slowly descend into a pit of mediocrity. It's got a solid yeah. slam dunk finish, I think. Like, that motivating philosophy underneath the whole series is really borne out of, like, <laughs> this sucks! Yeah. It's bad! And, you know, I have to admit, even looking back on it now, she was very cognizant of the fact that her protagonists are quite literally child soldiers. And yeah, that tends to mess people up. Yeah. Just like little bundles of trauma and a little bit of cool animal experience. So actually, another thing. Previously in our in the latest episode that we recorded, I asked which animal you would most be willing to be stuck in a morph of. And while I was driving today, I was thinking of kind of the happy opposite of that if you had morphing powers what would you be most eager or excited to morph i know this is not too surprising given the answer to my last question but definitely something that can fly dragonfly bird of prey something fast and easily maneuvers very easily perhaps even a beetle beetles are actually really bad at flying oh well never mind then they're pretty close. Well, this is actually an interesting beetle fact. The thing that sort of characterizes beetles that makes them sort of recognizably beetle-like is having their... Because most insects... Most insects have two sets of wings, right? And they're mostly um, membranous, meaning like, as you said, dragonfly, two sets, membranous wings. You can see right through them. They got a bunch of veins. Two sets of them. Beetles also have two sets of wings, However, the front set of wings is usually really hard, and they're called elytra. And so when they fly, most beetles have to sort of raise up their front set of wings. Like those doors on douchey cars. Suicide doors. That guys have that sort of fold up or to the side. Or gold wing doors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then they fly with the single set of membranous wings on the back. So if you actually look at pictures of a lot of different kinds of beetles flying, they tend to be kind of in a an almost an upright position, just sort of desperately flapping along. Some are better than others, but they're mostly pretty bad. <laughs> I was thinking about this today, and I would like to be those giant salamanders that live Ooh. in China. Good choice. They're like six the like six feet long salamanders. And I think to morph this, what I would do, I would just get into a little puddle and lay down on my stomach and then morph into the salamander. And I think it would be a really chill experience. Yeah, it sounds really relaxing. I think it would be great. So the departure. Let me find, while I find the specific summary of this book, why don't you tell the folks at home what Animorphs is? Okay, so if you're not old like some of us, Animorphs was a kidlet in the mid to late 90s going into the early 2000s the basic premise is that five teenagers wind up right next to a 
shot down alien spacecraft. And this incredible alien comes stumbling out and says, your planet is being invaded by these, like, mind-controlling parasites. They're the ones who shot me down. They're about to come and finish me off. But we've invented this amazing technology that allows you to transform into pretty much any macroscopic organism as long as you can acquire its DNA, which you do just by touching it for a little bit. Um, I'm going to give you this capability using this magic cube thing that I have, and hopefully that will be able to allow you to resist these invaders more effectively until the rest of my people can get here. And so, oh, but you can't stay in any one form other than your own for any longer than two and a half hours or you'll be stuck forever. It's just um, two hours. Oh, two hours? Okay. Two hours. Remember. Two hours. And one of them does get stuck in the form of a hawk, Tobias, which is what we were talking about earlier. And then what follows is uh, 50-odd books of them fighting these invading parasite aliens called the Yurks in foiling their various schemes to take over the planet, which makes it sound cheesy, but it really isn't. Like, it, it's pretty brutal, honestly. It's a, it's a, little, it's a little bit cheesy. Okay, okay, yeah, I, I take that back. Yeah. There is a lot of, like, late 90s cheese in there. Lest we forget B-Ball 94. Yeah, yep, I've forgotten about that. <laughs> Never forget. There are 54 books in the main continuity, but there are four Megamorphs books, which I'm not reading because I don't think they're very good, and then four Chronicles books, which I am reading. Uh, I will say, my... Did you read Animorphs as a kid? I did. Um, I didn't read the whole series but i remember number book number four the message where they turned into dolphins for some reason i read that over and over again and not coincidentally that was a cassie book i mean the one thing i know about young girls is that they love dolphins yep and horses uh uh, accurate here on both counts yeah whereas i never particularly was into dolphins and i think that's explain that gender criticals (laughs) the thing is when they were first being published i was too young to read them because they started being published in the late 90s yeah no and i I was like in just the right sweet spot because i was like 10 at that age i didn't know how to read gotcha so um and then later i would see them because they would in the library there would be those like you know turning organizers for yeah paperbacks Yes, and they would have them for, like, Harlequin romances and then, like, Animorphs. And for one reason or another, I think because the original covers have a very camp quality that as an adult I can now appreciate, but as a child I was like, this is silly. For that reason, or because I thought only cheap bad books were in those turning things, I never read them because I was Hmm. a snob. It's my great shame. But then when I was in university, my friends were like, actually, Animorphs? He's very good. And I was like, okay. And then I read them all, and I was like, Cassie is the best. Animorphs is the best. Kay Applegate, I love you. And I haven't had to take any of those back yet. Yeah, no, she remains a very good person. Yeah. Just recently, in response to a, a, you know, a kid's book being banned in Tennessee, she bought 100 copies of that book and told the booksellers basically distributed this to school children as you see fit. I think I think what sets Animorphs apart is that it manages to be at its intended reading level. Like it's at the reading level of like a nine-year-old. But without actually sacrificing the like exploration of interesting and complex ideas, 
that makes for good science fiction. Like it is simplified down to the level of comprehension of a child. Yeah. But it is not overly simplified so that there is kind of nothing for you if you are no longer yeah, a child. Yeah, it's still, cha- it'll, you know, it, I wouldn't say it will challenge adult readers, but it, you know, there's definitely still substance there. Absolutely. And so The Departure is, I think, my favorite Animorphs book. But first, I will read the Goodreads summary. Cassie's had it. After the last mission, she realizes she's getting tired of missions, tired of battles, tired of being an Animorph. She decides that she just can't do it anymore, so she quits. But that's not the worst that's happened. It seems a human controller named Karen followed Cassie after the last run-in with the Yerks, and she knows Cassie is an Andalite, or human. Either way, if she exposes Cassie, it's all over. No more Cassie, no more Animorphs, no more planet Earth, dot dot dot. Good news is this is only 19 out of a main continuity of 54 books. So we know that there's still Earth and Animorphs after this one. Yeah, spoilers. Spoiler alert. How does this one treat you, Tessa? I enjoyed this. I like the fact that the major part of it is that she ends up spending a lot of time stuck out in the wilderness with a controller, which is a person who has been like taken over by a yerk. And they actually end up having a lot of interesting conversations about how each side considers what the other side to be doing as unethical. You know, actually, I don't want to say like humanizing the enemy because they're not human, but like seeing them as like actual independent beings who have feelings and thoughts and desires of their own, you know? Um, And Aftron like specifically says, oh yeah, you know, I didn't get into this because I, you know, wanted to fight and kill people. You know, that's why I ended up, you know, infesting like a five-year-old girl, you know, because I thought it would be a nice quiet position and it would get me off the home world, and, you know, I wouldn't have to do anything really violent. So it makes us realize that some of the Yurks are definitely, what's the word I'm looking for, complicit in what's going on, but they don't necessarily actively contribute to it. And at the end of the day, they're almost kind of indifferent to it, which is true for a lot of people, and that's actually something Cassie grapples with, is that she's complicit in a lot of human atrocities in the same way. Um have you seen the DS9 episode, The Duet? Don't think so. If I have, it was a long time ago. Okay. Well, at the risk of spoilers, The Duet is one of the episodes towards the end of the first season. Somebody calls down to like ops and they're like, we have a patient with Kalinora here and Kira is there. And she's like, oh, Kalinora is only from people who were at the Galatep labor camp, which is one of the labor camps that the Cardassians had with the Bajorans. So she assumes this is a Bajoran who was a survivor of the camp. And then they get to Med Bay and then she's like, put this man under arrest because it's a Cardassian. So obviously the idea of there being a Cardassian who was at a specific labor camp then becomes... Oh, he's a war criminal, not a survivor. And so the whole episode is basically a back and forth between this Cardassian and Kira. And it's, he says that he was just a file clerk. He's basically innocent. Then it gets turned up that he was in fact a goal. Um, And a goal is one of the like military positions within the Cardassian empire, very high up. And then there are inconsistencies in his stories. And it turns out, that actually he was the file clerk and he felt so guilty about his complicit inaction against the atrocities of the camp that he underwent cosmetic surgery to look like the goal and put himself in a position to be found, captured, and tried for war crimes 
as a as a desperate attempt to hold his countrymen accountable for the atrocities that he feels guilty for not stopping. Great episode. <laughs> and the thing is, one time I went to watch this episode at like an anarchist house when I was at university as part of a series of viewings of Star Trek episodes that they called All Cardassians Are Bastards. <laughs> it was great. Beautiful. Um, yeah, and so we watched the duet, and then in the discussion afterwards, I was like, I always identify not with Kira, but with Eamon Maritza, who is the Cardassian who was the file clerk. And they were all, and this was all like white leftists in Canada, right? So they were all like, whoa, identify with, oh, because I think leftists and progressive, etc., like to see ourselves. I mean, obviously, we like to see ourselves aligned with oppressed groups because you don't want to be aligned with oppressor groups, right. obviously, because they're oppressing people and that's not good. But I always identify very strongly with Eamon Maritza, not because I want to be a war criminal. I don't. But because I often feel it's a weird position to be in, specifically as like a white queer trans person, where I am under threat because of homophobia and transphobia, but within my communities like i am in the i am not in the one percent of the general population i am in the one percent of trans people right you know what i mean yeah and so it's and so reading the departure is also very interesting to me because it feels sort of spiritually similar insofar as aftran is not the worst yerk she is not actively going out and killing people and, you know, causing large atrocities, but she isn't fighting it either. And that's an interesting position of what do you do in those positions of like where it's unclear, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, it makes it a little more muddled, a little more complicated. Because I do think it's interesting, because this also begins sort of a sub-series, like a, a, a certain continuity within the books of, we do see Aftran again, and it's in, there's a book later that I don't think you read, where Aftran is going to be, uh, she's being held, and she's going to be questioned, and obviously she knows everything about the Andalite, or the quote-unquote Andalite bandits, which are the Animorphs, who are mostly human. And if she gets, you know, interrogated, then game over. So they have to go in and basically jailbreak Aftran out and save her. And then at the end of the book, they give her the ability to morph and she acquires a whale and she gets to be a whale forever, which is a pretty good deal. Especially right, yeah. because the Yurk's um, native environment is like the Yurk so they are basically aquatic individuals anyway so being a whale is just like being a big powerful yurk with vision yeah she went for it because it was peaceful and she was big enough that no one was going to mess with her yeah and so i think there's a lot there's a lot to this book because in the end because they have a lot of conversations of like would you where aftran 
through Karen is asking Cassie, would you be willing to give up the things that you are asking me to give up? And in the end, Cassie proves her integrity because she's like, yeah, I guess so. And, and, aside- and for, for context, Yurks in their native state, when they aren't like parasitizing another species, are blind, helpless, mostly helpless, like what, six inch long worms, basically. Basically. They're often described no. as slugs yeah, in a very um, derogatory way. They find vision an extremely novel, almost addictive sense to have because it is something they do not experience in their native state. Yeah. And I, I was thinking about this recently as a side note of like, I think there's maybe a little bit of, and it almost feels too extreme to call it outright ableism, but it is a very kind of like a very like normalized sense of what it is good about being a human, right? Like we get to look at things. Well, there are blind people. You know what I mean? Right. I don't think it's necessarily a huge problem, but I was thinking about that the other day. But I think it's included to make the point of Yerks are in a weird position where in their native state, they have a very limited environment, but very active, self-aware minds. Which is what led to the Andalites being interested in them, which then led to them getting Andalite technology, which then led to the Yurk War, which is ravaging the galaxy, right? What was I saying? Oh, so in the end, Aftran is like, I will give up infesting Karen and let Karen go free if you agree to morph this caterpillar and stay in morph and be a caterpillar. And Cassie's like, okay. I think I think that's one of the most interesting things that is in any of the Animorphs books. Because it's like, I don't particularly want to be a caterpillar, personally. Yeah, yeah. I would like to try out being a caterpillar. I would not like to live as a caterpillar. It's interesting because what makes it interesting is that a lot of things that Aftran argues is that, you know, why are you basically mad at us as a species for being parasites. It's just what we are. I mean, they find our consumption of meat kind of gross, but doesn't stop people from doing it. We, you know, we justify it just the same way they justify what they do, essentially. I don't know if that's in reality quite equivalent, but, you know, I can see why she would think that. Well, and it's also, again, going back to the later book where Aftran reappears, the way that they are able to get in and get Aftran out is that there, after the departure, there exists a Yurk peace movement that is growing on Earth of Yurks who don't want to non-consensually infest and control people, basically. And so in the later book, they are told about the problem from a controller who was one of their teachers at school who is who was originally an unwilling controller, but then developed a relationship and like a friendship with his Yurk. Yeah, he, he feels lonely and empty when his Yurk isn't with him. Yeah, and he's like, it's such a weird, I just feel so empty when he's gone. And like, to me, this is kind of a nightmare scenario because I like solitude. But let's say you're an extrovert who doesn't ever like to be alone. This could be a good gig for you because you just have a buddy there all the time. And also, I remember, you know, when the two aren't opposed to each other, the Yurk and the controller, they can be incredibly efficient because, like, the human host can, the Yurk can basically be driving the body while the human host works on mentally a problem or two, or vice versa. Exactly. It's, you can share the burden 
<laughs> of being alive, essentially, between two different minds. And that's a very compelling idea to me, not least because it is not totally dissimilar from the idea of joined trail. It's not quite the same, but it's not completely not the same right. either. Yeah, there's there's definitely um, parallels there. Because that's really the thing. Because, like, if the Yerks wanted to expand peacefully, I think if that became an option to people, like, hey, do you want to have this weird slug inside your brain? It's going to feel a little bit weird at first, but you can, like, have a buddy all the time and trade off and there's novelty and then they got to go to a place. Because that's the other thing, is that the Yerk can leave the brain in fact they have to every three days or so. they have to every three days and so you can like have designated a lot because that's the other thing is that a, a true sort of partnership relationship between a yerk and a human has to be based on an immense amount of trust because outside of the brain the yerk can't effectively communicate with the because that's the that's that's one of the real difficulties and then in the later book of course it part of the plot is also that axe has like an inflamed gland in his head and the way that they solve this problem he's like passed out on the operating table and cassie has aftran with her she saved her and lets her go into axe's head and connect to his brain and identify the exact place where Cassie needs to cut and get the thing out and how to do it. And they save Axe's life. But then he immediately wakes up on the operating table and his worst nightmare has been manifested. Yep. What a moment of tension. Great book. And, you know, because that was something I was thinking about is that, I mean, obviously this happened. The plot worked out the way it did for, because otherwise it wouldn't be a plot. You know, if the Yorks expanded peacefully, it might make for an interesting slice of night slice of life novel but you know probably would not be a bestseller amongst the ya set but you know just reading through these this dialogue between karen slash aftran and cassie they things did not have to be this way the yorks could have constructed synthetic host bodies which a sister species of theirs the iskior it's heavily implied did well rather they did build synthetic bodies it's implied they're a sister species although it's never quite fully confirmed yeah um that's another great book my boy jake coming this is the thing the first time that i read the animorphs books we're going off on a tangent i wasn't that connected to jake because as i said on our twitter the other day i fully believe that he is the only one of the animorphs that is a heterosexual person uh, no I, I i totally buy that actually yeah but i on rereading it because this is the thing it, i didn't particularly like marco the first time i read it either but now i'm like really into marco because i can appreciate the depths and layers of his character. I think originally I felt kind of antagonistic towards Marco because he was often antagonistic towards Cassie. And I was very defensive of Cassie. Understandable. Like, how dare you? But now I'm really into him. And Jake also, he is a great leader. Love you, Jake. <laughs> Plus he's dating Cassie for some period of time. I had forgotten that they get together. So the boy has taste, you know? He's a nice boy who is also has severe ptsd <laughs> yes 100 um, <laughs> but it is i think there is a, a kind of a a really moving poignancy to a lot of the departure also of the feeling of it didn't 
have to be this way. Yeah. But now it is this way. Because, you know, I was thinking, you know, the Yorks could have given the option to morph into more capable forms if they wanted to, you know, theoretically. Or if, you know, they wanted to keep their form and their culture as it was, they could, uh, on their planet, there's another, like, primate-like species called the Ged, which is what they evolved originally to sort of, like, parasitize slash become symbiotes with, who, you know, aren't, they aren't particularly intelligent. You know, again, they're about as smart as a chimp, maybe a little less. Um, and they're very clumsy and have poor vision. But, you know, it's what they had to start with. You know, you could, they could take control of a Ged, give it morphing capability, and then have it morph into a human or a hork which is another species in the universe or whatever. You know, and that way you have a very capable host body that is pretty much de novo, is blank slate, does not have necessarily a full consciousness on its own right. And admittedly, that could bring up other potential, ex, you know, ethical quandaries, but it's certainly much less so than taking non-consensual control of another fully conscious sentient being. So, you know, it, again, yeah, that's the thing I picked up on is that it didn't have to be this way. Yeah, I think it's also the the thing that really always sticks with me, again, going back to the duet and sort of that whole idea of how much do the complicit deserve in terms of forgiveness grace etc i i don't i mean i don't have an answer for it i just think that it's an interesting question presented of sort of like is it because the the main conflict that keeps coming up between cassie and the other animorphs particularly usually axe rachel and marco as the more hardcore like no grace no forgiveness no guilt like we do what we have to do of like, are the Yerks as a whole worth letting persist, right? Because not every individual, like not even all Yerks have bodies that they control. Like we see multiple times in the books that there are many Yerks who just live in the pools, who haven't been given a body to control, who, and it's a sort of central motivating ethical question, especially as we get further and further into the series of, does this violent imperial power have anything redemptive about it that is worth saving? Or is it morally and ethically valid to pursue total elimination? And that often becomes a problem with Cassie versus, you know, Marco Rachel Axe yeah. and the others in general, where Cassie has a very hard line all life in the universe has a baseline value attached to it yes. and the others often disagree with that either more sort of maliciously i would say from rachel versus pragmatically from marco versus just like cultural bias from axe yeah you know it's kind of very much uh, a a sort of odd version of like the anthrocentric versus biocentric you know philosophical frameworks which we've discussed previously on this podcast a while while back of you know does life have an inherent value um even when some of that life may be doing not great things and i i I will say this i am not gonna offer like yes we should save i mean within the constructed like non-allegorical reality of the animorphs universe when we're just talking about the yurks in very literal terms i think cassie is right 
because obviously we see this individual who gets personalized. We meet other Yurks who are actively fighting against the Yurk Empire, like as an institution, like they're fine. But I've been more thinking about this a lot in that I've been trying to read and learn more about like America as a settler colonial state, indigenous sovereignty, land back, etc. Right. And I think, and one thing that I keep coming back to is the problem of all of the people who are here now who never should have been really. And and what do we do about that? Because on right. one hand, I'm very selfishly interested in there being a resolution to the problem because I like living here and I enjoy living here. But then on the other hand, it's a very like the way history went, I uh, there's really no reason for me to be in the Sonoran Desert. And yet here I am. Do you know what I mean? Yep, yep. Again, there are parallels, whether we want to admit or not. And this is, uh, really, this is all just saying that when I when I read The Departure, when I watch the duet, I am more often identifying with Aftran, with Eamon Maritza, because of the position of how do you resolve being in a position that you inherited through genocide, exploitation, racism, right. imperialism. How do you reconcile that with also knowing from within your own mind that, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not such a bad guy, right? Like that position of, I didn't ask for it, but I still have it. And what do I do with it? Right. Hashtag land back, hashtag find land back areas for tribes and nations in your area and maybe give them some money. Good thing to do. Good thing to do. And or contribute to legal funds for land and water protectors. Either or. It's tax return season, but also we are in a pandemic and nobody has any money, so. As we've established in our latest episode recorded together, we're phasing in new into the episode questions and i want to get your answer to would you get a loved one cloned after they died you know i don't think so i think it would just be a really unsettling experience i might do it if it were like a dog but even then i think it would still be kind of weird because they're not gonna you know person or animal they're not gonna act the exact same way that the previous individual did but they're going to look almost exactly like them and that's just going to be really that's just going to make things worse yeah it's at the risk of making this too black mirror because i hate to give any concessions to them (laughs) at all but i think the sort of conclusion of that one episode where yeah not a clone as such but like a reconstruction of a loved one from all of their social media posts etc i think it would be so kind of an an uncanny valley of grief of like this looks and exactly like an axe basically like the thing or the person or the animal that i loved but it's not quite the same thing i i think it would just make things i don't think it would be comforting and i think Instead of being comforting, it would be actively 
grief induced. I think it would be yes, really... exactly. Yeah, that, that that's exactly my thoughts on it. That said, if I could sort of sci-fi, well, see, because here's a there's sort of the two questions. One is the sort of would you clone them in the way that we do actually have and have cloned things of making a genetic genetically identical new version but then there's also the very sort of magic slash soft sci-fi idea of you basically copy paste an organism with all the that same gets, memories and the same you know this is getting back into the uh discussion we had back way 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 when we were first starting this one about whether or not it's immortality if it's just copying yourself or if there has right. to be continuity of consciousness. I, I think I would feel more comfortable with that um, as long as I didn't think about it too, too, too hard. The problem is you would think about it too hard. Knowing me, probably. Um, I, I, I don't know. It would probably depend a lot on the circumstances. And also, like, the wish of the person involved. If they said, I don't care, clone me back, you know, um, regardless of whatever philosophical implications i thought they're just like yeah i don't care you know this is for me this is important yeah i i would respect those wishes but you know beyond that i don't know it probably depend on the person and the situation i still don't think i would do it because i'm imagining here i definitely wouldn't do it with any of my human loved ones because i think that gets into very weird territory of like yes. that's definitely not the same person yeah um, that too and then I was thinking about it because I think like um, Barbara Streisand has like cloned one of her dogs a bunch of times. Yep, that sounds right. And so that's what motivated me to think about this because I'm always hearing about Barbara Streisand because I love musical theater. And so I was thinking about like, would I get my beloved cat Hank cloned? Hank, whom I love more than almost anybody or anything in the world, who is my cat soulmate. Like, would I get that guy cloned? And it always comes back to, for me, like, is it fair to him to not let him just die? Uh, well, I mean, on the other hand, you know, it's, like we said, it's not the same cat, arguably. Uh, yeah. So, like, I, 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 you know, we're dealing with a whole separate organ organism, so I don't know if that would actually be a real issue, necessarily. Yeah. Unless we want to get into the metaphysics of it, which is a whole other conversation. Best cat in the world. I would not clone Alan Alda, the cat, um, or the human. In this case, the ambiguity of his name doesn't matter. I wouldn't clone either one of them. It's really just that Hank, that I'm just like so sad about the fact that someday he's going to have to die. But on the other hand, without death, there is no life. I think that was supposed to be the message. This is what I've... I haven't seen The Eternals because, I frankly, I don't care about Marvel movies, which is not like a Martin Scorsese dunk on them. I just don't. Uh, think honestly, I think you're in good company at this point. Yeah. I mean, for one, Martin Scorsese. But yeah, so I haven't seen The Eternals, but I feel like from hearing about people talk about it on podcasts that I do listen to, the message of The Eternals is supposed to be like, kind of sucks to be the same forever. And now I don't remember how I got there, but I believe it's... We were true. talking about cloning. Yes. I wouldn't want to be static. I would want to die at some point. I don't want to live forever. Frankly, I don't even particularly want to live to be like 100. That seems a bit too long. Hmm. When do you... Tessa, when do you want to die? 
You know what? I haven't really thought that through, honestly. Um, That's incredible to me. Because, you know, part of it is that I still feel a little cheated, which I think is true for a lot of LGBT people in that, you know, we don't get to be our true selves until a bit later in life compared to a lot of people. You know, mid-20s in my case. Um, So I feel like I'm still playing catch-up in that respect. Um, Mm -hmm. And then maybe after another few years, I'll be able to think about, you know, how... You know, what age would I prefer to live to? It would, I think a lot of it would depend on quality of life. Yeah. I just don't want to live in a nursing home. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. Much love to everybody who works in nursing homes and lives in nursing homes, but I, it's, not, it's not for old Charles, I don't think. If you want to find me online, I'm on Twitter at Cockroach. Arles. And I am on Twitter at SpacerMace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E, or you can find more of my stuff online at TessaFisher.com. The show is on Twitter at ASABpod or at our website where we post show notes and transcripts for every episode, ASABpodcast.com. And if you like the show, please tell other people that you think might also like it because it's apparently the number one way that podcasts grow. And until next time, keep on sciencing.